This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 52 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am thrilled to be joined by a very special guest. Few people in the history of television have ever created and or produced as many hit shows as Chuck Lorre, who has single-handedly kept alive the multi-camera, live-audience comedy format that I Love Lucy popularized in the 1950s, but that has largely faded from the scene in the age of cable and streaming. At the moment, he's the man in charge of the highest-rated comedy on television, The Big Bang Theory, one of the most critically acclaimed comedies on broadcast, Mom, and the just-finishing Mike and Molly, which helped to put Melissa McCarthy on the path to stardom. All three shows air on CBS, for which he also previously made Two and a Half Men, in both its Charlie Sheen and Ashton Kutcher incarnations. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about his circuitous journey to the world of television, the pleasures and bumps he experienced during his rise to prominence on shows like Roseanne, Franny's Turn, Grace Under Fire, Sybil, and Dharma and Greg, why he regrets leaving Dharma and Greg, even though staying would have precluded his remarkable run at CBS, the unique experience of working with and then having to replace Sheen, his thoughts about the future of both The Big Bang Theory, which recently aired its 200th episode, and the multi-camera format in general, the personal meaning to him of the critical love that Mom has received, the likes of which a Laurie show has never seen before, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Chuck, thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. And to begin with, I just always like to ask, for the record, where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? Born in Brooklyn, raised on Long Island. My dad owned a luncheonette, which is which is an archaic thing. I guess it doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. It was, uh, you know, about seven or eight counter stools, show and order food, coffee, uh, milkshakes, ice cream, sodas. I was a soda jerk for many years. Mm-hmm. Newspapers, comic books. Cigars and cigarettes, greeting cards. (laughs) Right. What sort of TV did you consume as a kid, and was there anything that was a particularly formative TV experience for you? Well, early memories, thanks to my dad, were uh, watching The Honeymooners, Phil Silvers. He was devoted to The Ed Sullivan Show, which I used to argue with him relentlessly about it because it was on the same time as the wonderful world of Disney. But we would watch... Ed Sullivan, and so what I got was an introduction to every great stand-up comedian there was at the time, mm-hmm. and that was impactful as well. Not recognizing it at the time, but you're watching the best stand-ups in the world. Did I read something about one particular episode of Ed Sullivan that really stands out? Oh, Henny Youngman. <laughs> was, yeah, I wrote about that. I was probably maybe seven or eight years old. And Henny Youngman did a joke that my dad probably heard when he was seven or eight, but it was new to me. Right. And the joke was uh, he lifts his arm and he swings it and he says, Doc, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, don't do that. That was the joke. <laughs> and I fell off the couch. I was on the floor. I was clutching my stomach. I was crying. I was right. laughing so hard. And that got my dad laughing because <laughs> he couldn't believe that this joke could possibly work on another human being. <laughs> it was so dusty. Right. It's right? like Borscht Belt. And, and he started laughing. And then 
I, and then we just, it became convulsive. We couldn't stop. And for years after that, if he wanted to make me laugh, he'd just, he'd just do this with his arm. He'd swing his arm and say, don't do that. And I'd go. Right. I'd just go. It would, it would, I would have an avalanche of laughter because right. the structure of that thing I thought was astonishing. Right. <laughs> the simplicity of it. <laughs> so now you eventually go off to college. And as I understand it, drop out to pursue for the next 17 years, primarily music, wherever you'll be welcome. Yeah, and I tried to find my way into songwriting as a career. It was very limited success. But we must note for listeners, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song is a big that was, one. That was a part of my legacy, yeah. <laughs> and also I'm Debbie right. Harry, non-blondie, biggest hit, right? I don't know uh, how that factors into her non-blondie years, but I was so <laughs> thrilled and proud right. when I found out that not only did she record the song, but it was a single from that album. So, yeah. So how do you look back on those years? I mean, it seems like that is a very different place than where you've ended up. Was that your real dream to be a yeah, musician? Yeah, my dream. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I, I really I couldn't imagine living a different kind of life. It was hard to put it down. It really was hard to put it down. I, I, had, I was so wrapped up in it. But I had two young children, and I wasn't able to put enough protein on the table. It was really hard to take care of everybody. So TV, first uh, with the you know Saturday morning animation stuff, seemed like an opportunity to actually pay for dentists and things <laughs> like that. And uh, How did that even emerge as an option, though, for somebody that hadn't worked in the business up to that point, I guess, aside uh, from the music? In the 70s. I was writing music, and I hooked up with a guy named Spike Jones Jr., who's Spike still around doing stuff for the Emmys and TV Academy. And uh, Spike at the time was touring, doing a show based on his dad's act. This, you know, Spike, the immortal Spike Jones. And I got into that band, and I was playing guitar with Spike for a couple of years. And then I don't know how it happened, but we wrote our own show of new material and did a couple of songs of his dad's, you know, like Saber Dance and cocktails for two some of the greats but we're essentially writing sketch comedy to music and I was always fascinated with music with a comedic bent I know I was enamored with Randy Newman you know I wanted to be Randy Newman with a Stratocaster <laughs> that was my dream didn't quite play out but right. comedy was always part of rock and roll for me I love the tubes and Danny Elfman's band back in the day, the Oingo Boingo, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. There was just some really cool stuff going on. So I was getting my feet wet, not making any money, dying, really, but I was getting a sense of that you, know, you can make an audience laugh, and here's how you do it. And you can actually attach it to music. You know, I think the greatest lesson of, of that entire experience, as difficult as it was for a long time, just, just paying the rent was, a, was an exciting journey was none of it was wasted. I wrote hundreds of songs that were probably just landfill, and they're awful, <laughs> just awful. But the act of doing them and, and, and trying to write a coherent piece of music with a lyric that made sense and mattered, it was about something that was three and a half, four minutes long, was a discipline. You know, and I, I, I decided if I'm going to be a songwriter, then I need whether I'm selling these songs or not, I need to do them. I need to create them. So I was, you know, I would set myself a goal of right. at least writing a song one a week, no matter what. There was no excuse. I had to clock in and write. Otherwise, it was a fancy. It was, it was a passing fancy. It wasn't really a discipline. Right. And not much came of it, but the discipline mattered. And so you're doing the children's animation, and then the next big shift, I guess, is how do you make the leap from children's animation to scripted comedy as a live-action series? Well, the, the, even the children's animations, they were film scripts, you know, and in a way, they were cumbersome and more difficult in some ways because you actually had to write out every camera angle. If you wanted an extreme close-up, you had to tell the storyboard artist, I want an extreme close-up on the magic ring <laughs> that, uh, right. that the character is making a wish on. And if you wanted the camera to swoop into that ring and see through the prisms of the ring the face of the character looking at it, you had to write that out so the storyboard artist would execute it in storyboard form and then it would go to Korea or, <laughs> or Mongolia right, for animation. Right, right. So it was another discipline to learn how to visualize a scene. And yes, it was a scene that eventually was, you know, 
very limited animation and maybe somewhat crudely done, but the discipline of writing was still Similar, the same yeah. thing. You, you had to, uh, if you can imagine it, it could be done in animation, right. but you had to first articulate it on the page. So I've read stories where, I guess, just independently seeing what you could do with it, you write a Golden Girls script and try to get it to Betty White. You do different... Oh, uh, that was great. I, actually, here's a great show business story. I I knew a guy who lived next door to her. <laughs> okay. And, you know, it helped that I loved that show. I was an enormous fan of that show. Mm -hmm. I thought it was brilliant. It still is. Mm -hmm. It holds up. It was just great writing. Susan Harris. An incredible cast. So... I know the guy lives next door, so I, therefore, have access. <laughs> right? I mean, as dumb as that sounds, right. that was my thinking. I'll give it to him. He'll give it to her. I'll have a TV career. Right? <laughs> right? Very simple. Right. And, of course, you know, he said, well, I need to read it first. <laughs> I need what did to, he do? Uh, he actually was, God bless him, he liked it. He thought it was a good script. He was a writer? He was an anim animation writer. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, very, very successful It'd be animation funny if he was a plumber and he wanted no, no, to read no, it No, 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 he was an animation him. writer, and <laughs> God bless him, he put it in her mailbox with a note <laughs> or something. And, and I got a handwritten note back from Betty White a couple of weeks later. And I'm no fool. I wrote the script, and it featured her character. It was actually, a, I still remember the story. It was really meaningful to me. And uh, she wrote me a note saying she loved the script, and she was going to bring it to the producers. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm, here we go. This is the beginning of a career. Right. I, I, you know, I'm no longer going to be working bar mitzvahs in Tarzana. <laughs> I'm, I'm in television now. Right. And, uh, you know, about a month or so later, the script, came back to me with a form letter saying it was not up to their standards. Thank you for your submission. Oh, my gosh. And I, I just, knowing what I know now, I, I have to imagine the look of horror on the faces of the producers when, <laughs> when Betty White it. walks in and says, we should do this, <laughs> hands a script to them, puts it on the table right. and says, we should do this. I really like this. I imagine they were very polite right. and very courteous, <laughs> and then they went, threw it yeah, right, right in the garbage. In the garbage. <laughs> right, right. Um, but all right, it was, it, you know what, in a way it was encouraging. The fact that she responded that was, nice. was extremely encouraging to me that I, I wasn't that far off the mark. Right. It didn't get made. The script got me other work on other shows, hmm. and it opened up other doors, not Golden Girls, right, unfortunately, right. <laughs> but it did do its job. It got me work elsewhere, and I, and I started writing. So it seems that the first big one that came together was Roseanne. Yeah. And... There were two years there when I guess this was the first time you're seeing human beings visually seeing them delivering your dialogue. No, it wasn't the first time, yeah. but it was the first time I saw major stars. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, at the time, you got to remember, Roseanne was the biggest star in the country, if not the world. Mm -hmm. Routinely, the show would get 40 million people wow. Wow. watching the show. And they were household names John Goodman, Laurie Metcalf, Roseanne. It was. It was an astoundingly powerful thing to be part of. And uh, I've uh, discussed this elsewhere, that uh, that first rehearsal where they were running through the scene that I'd been part of, I, I turned to Bob Meyer, who was the executive producer and a friend of mine. I whispered to him, they're saying what we wrote. <laughs> I was I was kind of amazed. Yeah. Oh my goodness, they're actually saying what we wrote. <laughs> I was it was staggering. I was in awe of these people. Sure. So now is the reason that you left after two years because you had an opportunity to go and create your own show? Yeah, That's the reason. Marcy Carsey and Tom Werner came to me with an idea for a show. The star. They had a woman they wanted to uh, play the lead, and they had an idea for what it should be, and they said, we want you to write it, and I I was delighted. I, you know, This was the, Franny's the, turn. Franny's turn. I wanted it to be a show about a, a woman in an unhappy marriage who leaves and goes off to live with her daughter, her grown daughter, and makes a new life for herself, but they were very enamored with the domestic comedy at the mm -hmm. time. You have to remember, they were riding an enormous wave of success from Cosby and Roseanne. Mm -hmm. They weren't about to do a show about divorce. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that was not in the cards. So I, I did as I was told. I wrote the pilot script, and it got on the air. It got the coveted 8 o'clock Saturday night spot <laughs> on CBS. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they really big commitment. They committed to six episodes. Mm -hmm. which is they were, what they committed to you know, was Marcy and Tom, right. whose right. track record was just outstanding. Right. And I was just happy to, you know, ride along, right. uh, clutching their coattails. 
So, you know, that one, unfortunately, after a few weeks, I think that was over. But then relatively soon after, you have Grace Under Fire, get another one off the ground, and then Sybil. And so what I find interesting about those three in a row is that, first of all, three about female protagonists. That mm-hmm. was interesting that because you've obviously done very different things since then. But three in a row there. And then also in each of those cases, for one reason or another, relatively short-lived experiences with those shows. And I wonder for you, does it get disheartening when you pour your life and you know heart and soul into these things? And for one reason or another, either in the case of Franny's turn, you know, I guess it just didn't click. Didn't work. Or... You know, with Sybil, it seems like it may not have been your call to exit, whatever the case may be. Is that tough to rebound from when that happens? It does require substantial amounts of Jack Daniels. Um, (laughs) It was an easier call. You know, the experience on Grace Under Fire was really volatile. It was a really tumultuous relationship with Brett Butler. And um, not taking anything away from her, she's a really talented lady, but it was a very unhappy situation. So I asked to leave the show after 13 episodes, which, you know, how unhappy was it? It was the number two show in the country. (laughs) You know, it was on after Home Improvement or something at the time, and it was enormously successful just because of where it was. And I like to think we were doing a nice job. You know, it was, uh, you know, with Dave Thomas. I think you guys won the Golden Globe. I mean, you did, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. But it was really, really difficult to be there. And they said, please, just finish the season, and then we'll figure something out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think about a month after the holidays or so, the huge 93 earthquake mm. crashed into Los Angeles. And, you know, the roof of the stage caved in, and I was like, come on, let's fix this roof. <laughs> we got to finish this show. I mean, right. just, you know, the city is devastated, and I'm just going, come on, put the roof back right. on. Let's get this done. <laughs> um, I want to go home. Right. And then after that was over, I somehow wound up developing a show for Simple Shepherd, and because uh, <laughs> I'm a slow learner. Um, but, you know, I got to work with Baranski, yeah, who's, that, on, right? who's on Big Bang yeah. tonight. You know, she plays Johnny Galecki's mother course, on the Big Bang Theory, and we've been friends for, I don't know, this whole time. So and you, we're you, talking about uh, 25 years. And that was her first Emmy, She I think, won an Emmy. Yeah. Out of the gate, first 13 episodes. That's great. Yeah. It was an amazing experience to watch that, watch someone with those kind of skills work. So... From these briefer experiences, now you start off Dharma and Greg, and you're on for like five, yeah, six man, years. I think uh, it, ran, it ran five, six years, something like that. And so I guess I wonder where the idea from that came from and also what the greatest challenges of that may be. I got the sense from reading about it that in this case, and I guess there's always going to be something, but in this case it's like the network wanted something like promotable storylines. Is that correct? We are under a lot of pressure in the last couple of years of that series to do highly promotable stories, which, you know, in retrospect was a, a lesson I've learned the hard way. You know, that that's not something you should be doing. You should be telling the appropriate stories of, that are appropriate to these characters and these relationships as opposed to what's promotable. Yeah, what does that even mean? It means high-concept stories, you know, and trying to do that means you're always trying to top yourself, too. And, and this medium for camera, live audience kind of show excels in small stories, internal stories, you know, heartbreak over a relationship ending, the the problems that don't involve a lot of pyrotechnics. And uh, that's where this kind of medium really excels, and I knew that. I learned it on Roseanne. That was a very small show. We did small stories about raising a family with all kinds of obstacles, financial obstacles, emotional obstacles, you know, just the normal stories of life is what made that show great. And I learned the lesson. I adapted it in Grace, and I started moving away from it in Sybil, and I allowed myself to completely lose my mind on Dharma. <laughs> but that being said, you know, Dharma was a lot of fun. The whole premise of that was, is there a show where the female lead was a life-affirming, loving generous creature of light because I had been doing shows where there was a great deal of anger and sarcasm right, right. And, and, and just all kinds of friction in the characters and they worked they were so great. It was a conscious decision. It was a conscious decision what happens if the female lead is a gloriously 
joyful character. Would it even be funny? Right. And it was a perfect match for Janet Elfman. Yeah. Perfect match. Uh, she was a dream come true. And what it turned out to be was, the, you know, in a way, when you write a character like that, she's almost like an alien. Yeah. She's almost, you know, like a visiting from another planet <laughs> because she was the character who walks down the street with her husband and feeds other people's parking meters <laughs> rather than a stranger get a ticket. Right. Because it's just the right thing to right. do, you know. And that was a great lesson that you could, you could take a character and find comedy out of a positive mm-hmm. and that was definitely been applied since in others of yours which we'll come to but uh, sure it seems that it was a major turning point in your life when you had to decide whether or not to leave dharma and greg and go with warner brothers to other pastures what was your thought process at that time it seems like it i was really... very stupid <laughs> you think so yeah i really was it was one of the bigger mistakes of my career leaving dharma after four years and um, why do you feel that way because i you know <laughs> It's a child that you've birthed, and you need to care for it. <laughs> and you need to care for it right through till they turn out the lights. And uh, leaving that show prematurely was a mistake. I got dazzled coming, the opportunity to come here to Warner Brothers. I still was a consultant, but when you're not there, when you're not hands-on, you know, boots-on-the-ground kind of deal, it's not your show anymore. But if you and, had uh, not left, a lot of these other shows might not have happened. I'm not saying that you know that that you know wonderful things came about as a result of coming to Warner Brothers, but I regret leaving Dharma. Mm-hmm. I really do. If I could do it again, I would have made a different choice. Wow. Uh, you know, I, uh, regardless of the outcome, it, it plays into Big Bang right now. We're finishing our ninth season, and um, we're at 200 and I don't know 10, 15 episodes. And I don't know how long it's going to go, but I would hate to step away and miss any moment of it. Because mm-hmm. these things don't roll around too often. You don't want to miss it. And, yeah. you, and you want to protect the body of work so that whenever someone turns on the TV and sees an episode, any episode, it's worth watching. Mm-hmm. Well, one side legacy of Dharma and Greg is that beginning with the first episode, I believe you began your vanity cards, which are very interesting. For people who may not know what we're referring to when we say vanity cards, can you explain what that is and how that began for you? When you create a show and you executive produce the show, traditionally, and long before I came along, they uh, they give you a card that flashes on the screen for two seconds that you can put your name on. Uh, you know, Gary David Goldberg had Sit Ubu Sit, right? <laughs> which was wonderful, and, and Stephen Canal had him tearing out a, a paper from a typewriter, and it animates, and it flies away, and, you know, and uh, Stephen Bochco's father, man was playing the violin, which I think was supposed to evoke Stephen's father. And so they give you this. I always assume they, give, they don't give anything. It's in, it's in lieu of cash, <laughs> right. I assume, they're giving you this card. And it, it doesn't signify, it's called, a, it became known as a vanity card because it really doesn't signify that you're producing the show, you're not deficit financing it, it's not your studio, it's not your stage, they're not your cameras, they're not, you're not handling the payroll. You know, well, Bochco did. He, his, <laughs> he was a real deal. He was a real company. So it's a vanity card in the sense that it's, it's when it says your card, and then the real card is Warner Brothers, Universal, Sony, Fox. Those, that's not a vanity card. It's their show. <laughs> yeah, right. They own the darn thing. They own the film. They get to distribute it. They, you know, they get to uh, skim. <laughs> so, so that, but you chose to. Oh, to, it. To, yeah. And the opportunity came along just before Dharma and Greg debuted. What was that? Around ninety six or something? Ninety seven. And uh, what do you want your vanity card to be? And they were VHS recorders back then, so the only way you could possibly have read these things was if you had a very, very good VHS player <laughs> that didn't wobble. Right. Because if they wobble, if the right. heads wobbled, then the words were blurring. It, right. was, it just looked like meaningless boilerplate. And for a long time, that's all people thought it was, was just legal boilerplate. Right. But you were slipping in some... some... I was slipping in stuff, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I remember at the time ABC was like, we're not really sure we like this, but we're really not sure we can stop right. it <laughs> because we're really not sure what you're doing. Right. And it became a thing I came to like doing because it had no financial value whatsoever. It was never meant to be anything other than just a way to say what's on my mind or what little, <laughs> what, what, you know, what nothing is on my right. mind. 
it's gotten me in trouble in the world of DVRs where it's very easy <laughs> to pause and read them. Right. You know, there came a point where even now, every one of them is vetted by lawyers now. And some haven't made it on the air, but they are some on your website. They're on so. the website, and every time I write censored, it crashes the website. <laughs> you know what I mean? So That's funny. But I've calmed down. I really don't want to use them anymore to uh, create any uh, upset. Sure. That's not the point. The point is, like uh, liner notes on record albums, you're too young. <laughs> but they used to write really cool stuff in the albums about the making of the record right. and the band. And while you were listening to the record, you'd read... And you, you were getting a little added value right, in right. addition to the music. So maybe the vanity card is just, you know, a dollop of extra value <laughs> to you having watched the show. People certainly get a kick out of it. But, okay, so you now move into the era here at Warner Brothers, beginning mm -hmm. with Two and a Half Men. And a question that I have is when along the line you first realized that you had a hit with this one, because the extent to which that was a hit throughout its whole run is pretty rare. I started feeling very secure about the thing working when we put the cast together uh, that early. You know, Charlie and John and Angus were just wonderful. I mean, this eight-year-old boy who had this magical quality, saw him in The Rookie. Remember that great yeah, movie, yeah, yeah, Dennis Quaid? Yeah, yeah. And he was extraordinary in that film, and, and he was such an honest actor. You know, he was just, there was no stage kid there. Right. He was just just a remarkable young man. And, and John is a comic genius. And Charlie does what Charlie does better than anybody in the world. You know, he's a, kind of a Dean Martin character who, no matter how deplorable his behavior, you still liked him. Right. And the chemistry between the three just worked. Even when they first started reading together in auditions, it began with Charlie, and then John read with him, and, and, and we brought in Angus, and they all read together, and it was like, this is a remarkable dynamic between these three characters. And the pilot worked. Shot it with Jimmy Burroughs, and, and there's always a moment when you're shooting with Jimmy, and you can tell, Jimmy knows. <laughs> Jimmy, you know, you can He's watch Jimmy's enough, face. Yeah. He knows when these things are working. Right. It happened again when we did the Big Bang pilot. Mm -hmm. We shot that pilot twice, totally rewrote it, Threw out the first script, wrote an entirely new script, shot it again, added the characters of Wallowitz and Kuther Polly. And there's a moment in time when you look across the stage during the evening and, you know, there's a look that you get from Jimmy going, this, this thing's working. <laughs> right. There's something happening here that transcends the words. It's bigger than what you wrote. And you can feel it. Something happens with the chemistry between the actors. Mm -hmm. I really think they make a connection that... You can write that two people make a connection, but whether they actually can or not on camera is an entirely different thing. And that happens. You don't know until you're there. You don't know until you're there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One thing which I'm certainly not going to harp on, but I'm curious because it's a rare thing for somebody to have to do, is this transition of a major character comes out of a show, another major actor comes in in the middle of a run that then continues pretty tremendously thereafter. Yeah, yeah. So when that happened with Charlie and then Ashton, did you have any doubt that the show would be able to stay the course? Sure, I had doubts. Did you? Of course. You know, it was a terrible time. It was heartbreaking. I actually thought the show was over. You did? I really did. I really thought, you know, this incredible thing that we were having a wonderful time for eight and a half years. At the time, I, I this is done. I don't see how we can go forward. I remember somewhere in that spring of that year, I, I'm sorry, my mind is too muddled to actually remember dates, mm -hmm. but I don't know, it just, I, I remember having this weird kind of thought, well, why not try? I mean, if we fail, no one gets hurt. Right, nothing's <laughs> you know, lost. Nothing's yeah. lost, but why not try? This is great family of people, you know. And when you say family, you're referring to the whole, the whole production crew. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, is I mean, how many, like hundreds of people. people. Yeah. 
And uh, why not try? We won't know unless we try. And, and, you know, if we fail and we are ridiculed for having tried and failed, well, we'll deal with the ridicule. Mm -hmm. So what? Mm -hmm. But at least we gave it a shot. And we did four more years. That's amazing. We did four more years and had a blast with Ashton. And we poured our heart and soul in making that transition, that first episode where, you know, he appears in a cloud of Charlie dust, <laughs> you know, having tried to drown himself right. in the ocean uh, over a bad relationship. Right. It was a great lesson in uh, perseverance. Yeah, yeah. It kept that family together for another, uh, what, 80-some-odd episodes. And have things reached the point enough in the past now that you're, are you able to sort of forgive and move on about that? Oh, yeah, that? no, yeah. it's long gone. That's, yeah. that's uh, ancient history. Yeah. So another very rare thing that happen there starting several years into the run of Two and a Half Men is you simultaneously bit off Big Bang Theory, as we're saying, and to have two shows, even if they stunk, would be a lot to be dealing with, but to have two that were very well received, doing very well. I just wonder, before taking on the second one, did you seek advice from anyone, find out how are you even going to physically juggle this? I actually blind called uh, Norman Lear. <laughs> you didn't know each other? No. And I just said, you know, I looked back at the history of television. Who might be able to give me some advice and guidance? Because running one show is just ridiculously right. hard. I, I was mostly just running around like a crazy person doing one show. How sure. could I possibly produce two? And he was really sweet. He invited me over to his office and sat down with me. And uh, when I explained why I was there and how I was hoping he could give me any Hints as to prioritizing. How do you, you know, manage? You had seven at one point. Oh my God! Okay, you had seven, <laughs> right? And I remember he said, "Oh, you're not going to like the answer." <laughs> and basically, his answer was, "You go where the fire is burning the brightest, <laughs> and you try and put it out." Put it out, right? And I asked about delegating. He didn't have much advice about delegating. No. You just you run around from show to show, and you do the best you can. And how have you, in the subsequent years, when you've been dealing with? Two, sometimes three, at uh, four at one sometimes point. four. Yeah. From everything I've read and heard, it's not like you'll ever miss even a read through or something. Of, mm -hmm. of very rarely. So if you're that hands on, how do you manage your schedule to be that way and also not burn yourself out? Well, first, I have no life. <laughs> I have no life, and um, I'm just perpetually tired. Right. But one of the things I love about how this all played out is that these shows are all extremely different from one another. So when you go from Two and a Half Men to, to The Big Bang Theory or Mike and Molly or, or Mom, you're dealing in a, everything. It's a different tone. There's a different rhythm. The shows are, they're not, they're not spinoffs. They're, they're very distinctive things. The exhausting part is shifting gears. But once you shift gears, you're in a whole other environment. You're putting yourself in a place where you're trying to see the world through the, the eyes of these characters. Mm -hmm. What are they feeling? What are they saying? How might they respond given what's going on in the story? And it's entirely different. There is no crossover no. from show to show in the way they deal with it. And, and that's invigorating. But you know, that being said, there's no way you do this without surrounding yourself with great comedy writers and then leaning on them. Do you have anybody who, with you, moves from show to show? Any fellow writers or colleagues? You know, early on in the beginning of Big Bang, I had a couple of guys from Two and a Half Men crossing over to help. Lee Aronson, Eddie Gordeski, Don Foster, Mark Roberts, they all came over and helped. I said, guys, help. We're dying here. We don't know what we're doing. And so I had this great veteran writing staff on Two and a Half Men who, you know, lent of their time and skill to help us. And that's happened pretty much on every one of these mm -hmm. shows. You find ways to reach out. Uh, I've watched people over the years try and do a one-man show kind of deal where they're trying to do everything. And I, it seems like a recipe for failure. Or a meltdown. A or meltdown. Yeah. Or a show that goes two, three years and then explodes. Because mm -hmm. 22, 24 episodes a year in what, eight, nine months maybe, is is a ridiculous thing to do. And the people that succeeded the most that I learned from coming up when I was a staff writer, mm -hmm. they collaborated. They really listened to other people's ideas and opinions. And they didn't necessarily take them, right. but their ears were open. And I admired that. And I thought, that if I'm going to do this, then the way to do this is to have a great writing staff on each show and listen because if it's up to me, I'm, I'm alone, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm not going to pull it off. 
So considering that you're juggling so many of these at any given time, how far ahead on a storyline can you get? Like, And the reason I ask is, just for instance, with Big Bang, how early on did you know that these characters, like, well, let's take Sheldon, begins a certain way that he would ever end up as a sexual being or that Penny and Leonard would ever get married or mm-hmm. things that... You hap- don't. I didn't. Here's what I knew. I knew that if we brought relationships into the show... If we added Amy Farrah Fowler, Maya Bialik, and Melissa Rausch, I knew if we added interesting characters that were in ongoing relationships with our principal characters, it would enlarge our principal characters. I just knew that. Beyond that, I had no idea what would happen. The specifics, no, I didn't have a clue. I just knew that, you know, you want to know somebody, see them in relationship. That's the way they're tested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, put them in an, uh, an ongoing relationship that they can't run from, and you'll find out more about them. And we did. And you really yeah. are listening to and adapting as a result of the response that you get from the live audience, yeah, right? absolutely. The audience is a litmus test. It tells you when you're not as smart as you think you are. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's amazing after all these years. The audience still surprises me when we shoot in front of an audience. I, their response to the material is their response to the material, and, and it's... Sometimes I, I'll be angry with them. What you, what you, why didn't you laugh at <laughs> right, that? I right. think that's very funny. What's wrong with you people? Right. But there it is. And, and, and we're putting on a live show, and it's not working in front of 200, 250 people, whatever that is. My assumption has always been that uh, it won't work in a living room. It's a sample size that's acceptable to you. As I, they're not laughing, right. and they're seeing actors. They're not looking at a television set. They're watching human beings in front of them perform. Right. And if they're not responding right there, where it's very electric, it's very visceral, then it's probably not going to be funny in your living room. So change it, rewrite it, cut it, fix it, punch it up, and we, you know, take two, take three. The material changes. And just to confirm, I, I know the answer to this, but uh, there are no laugh tracks on a Chuck Lorre show. No. That is an option that I'm sure was available to you. Why did you decline to have that? Well, if you're putting fake laughs on. It's, assume it's not funny. The <laughs> real people didn't laugh. Right. So if they're not laughing and it's not funny and you put it on TV, it's going to fail. I mean, it's a recipe for failure. You it's, can't fake them out. The audience at home right. uh, can feel the cognitive dissonance of, <laughs> why am I hearing laughter? Because I'm not laughing. Right. I mean, the audience is much more savvy than to think you're going to put canned laughs on. I just think that's... It's just the worst kind of pandering to think you're going to fake somebody out and tell them it's funny by adding laughter. That's just why? Why not? Why not? Why not try and make it funny, right? right. Really funny, right. and then see what happens. Do you ever, because you have to come up with so many ideas for so many different? No, shows, I don't. I have lots of really, do do? really smart, funny so people. So it's not a concern oh, no. about running out of ideas. No, no, because you know, you, yes, if it was a one-man band, absolutely. After six episodes, these things would be done. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with Big Bang, as you're saying earlier, I guess tonight is the final episode taping of Year Nine. Mm-hmm. You guys have, I believe, historically done three-year renewals. Mm-hmm. How far do you see this continuing? We are contracted to do one more year. Year 10 is already contracted for with CBS. Mm-hmm. So we know we're doing one more year. Beyond that, I don't know. That's a Leslie Moonves question. But is it a desire <laughs> of yours to have it continue beyond one more year? You know, as long as the show's funny yeah. and everybody's having a good time, and that seems to be the case. I, I love the work we're doing. Right. I think the show, last couple of years, a young man named Steve Malero has stepped up to become the showrunner. And he's breathed life into it beyond my wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the reason the show is flourishing in its eighth and ninth season is because of this guy and the incredible staff he's created around himself. Right. So why not? Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if it was drudgery and, and, and we were not making a good <laughs> right. show and the show was kind of starting to flail around, then, yeah, let's leave the stage before they start throwing tomatoes. <laughs> But I don't feel like that's happening. I feel like the audience is still hanging in there with us. Now, Mike and Molly is saying goodbye mm-hmm. in a few weeks, May 16th, I believe. How do you feel about that? Do you feel, is that something that you are happy about? Is it something that you, it's hard to say goodbye to a show after several years? And I guess what led up to that and how do you feel about it? This was sad. 
this was this felt premature. I was really disappointed that uh, CBS was never terribly enthusiastic about it. You think from the concept? Yeah. I I don't know. I can't I can't speak for them. But here we were in our sixth season. We'd been bounced around on the schedule for the last couple of seasons. We missed the fall season and been mid season and you know scatter shot around. So. There wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for the show, so it was hurtful. Because when you're in it, you're in it, you're in it, you believe in it, and it's a it was a, it was it was I have to say it in a past tense. It was a, it was a great group of people. Great, Did you know though kids. going into it that this one might be a little bit of a tougher sell than others, perhaps because you were dealing with two people who at the time when it started were not especially well known who perhaps did not conform to the typical look of a TV series That's lead. Do those things yeah. make you, even if it's not right, yeah. does that... Did no, no, I actually thought that was the reason to do it. Yeah. I mean, Melissa and Billy are brilliant comic actors, obviously. The world yeah, knows sure. about M Melissa. They're going to learn over the next few years about Billy as well. He's Jackie Gleason is smiling down on <laughs> Billy. He's one of those guys who has those kind of chops. Yeah. When you're starting a romantic comedy with talents like that, what now? Screw the way it's usually done right. or what's come before. These these people are brilliant, mm -hmm. and this is a love story worth telling. And I'm proud of it. I'm very proud. Sure. With Mom, I think it deals with more serious subject matter than some of the others, to the extent, just for people who are catching up, that you've even had to have a PSA announcement attached to one after a character's tragic death. I wondered, because in other interviews, I think it was the New Yorker profile, you've talked about for a few years you had your own struggles. What motivated you to tell a more serious story like this one, and does it feel different in terms of the work that you have to do to tell it than if you're telling one that's a more lighthearted show? Storytelling on Mom is much more difficult. Really? Much more difficult. But it felt like the right time to try. I'd actually started in that area on Roseanne and Grace Under Fire telling the pilot of Grace Under Fire was her fear that her 10-year-old son was a chip off the old block and the old block was abusive, was physically abusive. She admits to having been in an abusive marriage. That was pretty heady stuff for 1993, but it worked. It was remarkably effective and it was still funny and it was heartbreaking at times. And we were able to do stories like that on Roseanne in the couple of years I was there. And then, for whatever reason, I moved away from that for a long time. And the idea of starting another show only made sense if the show was challenging. And we were able to tell stories that were not normally done. And when you find the comedy in the darkness, it's really good. It's really rewarding, but oh my God, it's really hard to do. It's and really hard to do. It's exhausting. But because of find, having finding the balance, you don't the... want. Yeah, you don't want to be disrespectful. Right, right. I, you know, uh, alcoholism and addiction ruins families. It mm -hmm. wrecks lives. It's a disaster. And yet, recovery is filled with laughter. <laughs> it is. It's a remarkable thing. And so, early on, I thought if the premise of the series is hope, that there's hope, that people can change, that regardless of their inability to do it well, they can grow. Right. And the, the clumsiness of growth is where the comedy is. I remember when we did the episode a couple of years ago where Allison and Anna's characters are coming to grips with their friend has breast cancer. All right. Now, normally in a TV comedy, you wouldn't even say the word. Mm -hmm. It's it's just no. Either the, word. The word. The word isn't said. Network, yeah. But the comedy came with their desire to want to be there for her and be supportive, but not knowing how. Their, you know, their ineptitude at being supportive was where we found the comedy. Their desire to be there and be good friends and, and be loving and supportive of their friend Mimi Kennedy's character, Marjorie, mm -hmm. was genuine and real, and people experienced that. Not knowing how to do it was where the comedy came from, and, and it worked. It was really... That was a... That was a big step for the show. I think I learned a lot from that episode, that uh, a series of episodes, actually, that you can tackle these things and find find a way in that still fulfills the contract with the audience, which is laughter. That's why you know we there's no again there's no no bombs going off, no <laughs> no airplanes right. coming over the horizon. Right. It's two people sitting having coffee and talking is pretty much what the show is about. 
So that storyline worked, and it kind of gave us the courage to go forward. And this show has been particularly well-received, critically, Mom. But I, I know maybe, although the, the bar of ratings set by the others is, is huge, I mean, does it strike you as odd that critical acclaim and massive ratings, it seems like you can only hope for one or the other <laughs> a lot of the time. Even awards, I think. How many people love and watch Big Bang every time, mm-hmm. and yet... You look at the Emmys or whatever, and it's not necessarily reflected there. No. What do you make of that? And I'm not saying it won't be. It just, historically, it seems like there is this either-or thing. I've joked that if the ratings on Mom go down anymore, we'll we'll win a Nobel Prize. Uh, (laughs) um, But, no, that's that's snide. Um, (laughs) I don't know. The only way to retain any sanity here is to not get caught up in that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We get to make a TV show. We get to make the TV show we want to make. Right. I've been really blessed over the years because of the success of Two and a Half Men and the Big Bang Theory to not have to deal with a lot of interference, a lot of you know second guessing. If I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail on my own instincts. Just shut up and be grateful for that is really the caption for that story. Is you know whether or not there's critical response. Make the show you want to make. And then, then the rest of it's out of my control. Right. I mean, honestly, what am I going to do? I have control over the words on the page, and to some extent, I can influence the performances. And I have, you know, I'm in the editing bay. <laughs> but after that, it's gone, right. and let it go. And and you know, uh, I've been delighted by the critical response to Mom. Just really thrilling because, you know, we become sort of the redheaded stepchild, the four camera. <laughs> sitcom, the live audience show is kind of considered uh, old-fashioned. For historical reference for our listeners, I mean, I think starting with I Love Lucy, Mm -hmm. the multi-camera live audience show Mm -hmm. became the thing. And for a lot of years, it was. Mm -hmm. But since the turn of the century, apart from your shows, it seems like it's a pretty endangered species. And I wonder in your estimation why that would be and why it's important to you to keep that format alive. I don't think it's important to keep it alive. You don't? I really don't. That's not my job. Mm -hmm. My my job is to make people laugh. Mm -hmm. I'm a comedy writer. My job is not to support a genre. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's uh, presumptuous. You know, if the audience has turned away from it, the only plausible reason I can think of is they've been disappointed too many times. You know, the cognitive dissonance of hearing laughter and not laughing. (laughs) The, The only real response that is is worthwhile is laughter. And if you're laughing, you actually shouldn't even hear the audience laughing because you're laughing. Right. <laughs> if you're not laughing, there's that dissonance, and then I think you push away from it. I think that's just natural. I mean, if you're watching a scary movie and you're not scared, something's wrong, <laughs> right? You know? Right. I mean, if the girl is screaming and hiding because the bad guy's coming in and you're right. just kind of like you're looking at your watch, it's not working. So... If the genre might be in trouble, it's because it hasn't been working. But when you stop and think about it, it was working for Seinfeld. Right. It was working for Raymond. It worked for Cheers. <laughs> right. It worked for Roseanne. It worked for even, you know, you go back to Taxi and and some magnificent comedies that were done in front of an audience. It's a, and You can go way back, but, you know, it's theater. But you don't feel beholden to it in the sense that it's now very much out there that your next project is about this pot dispensary in Colorado and that you guys well, are... Well, if you know if this, this this thing passes in November, we might move it to California. To California, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the idea now, apparently from what's been reported, and I think you, you don't dispute this, it's now being shopped around to a wide variety of places, not just CBS or wherever. So I wonder if a streaming service like Netflix or somebody came and said, we'd love to have you do it on our platform where for the first time maybe ever, I think for you, you are not beholden to a certain number of episodes per season. You can say or show whatever you want. Does that prospect, and again, you maybe not be Mm multi-camera, do those possibilities appeal to you? Are you curious? Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, Listen, I would love to try and uh, work in another way. You know, you write a script and then shoot it. From what I understand, <laughs> there's a great deal of work in editing because right. you have so much footage. Editing a four-camera show is pretty simple. It's a couple of days and you're done. Mm-hmm. It's a whole other kind of uh, storytelling when you're doing a film show where you, where you're you know using the camera in a very different way. 
So yeah, I'm curious. I, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to be given the opportunity at some point to fail at that, um, <laughs> or you know, or, or take my best shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still storytelling, right? And I'm still hopelessly, helplessly enamored with laughter, and laughter still has to be part of the equation. Otherwise, it's, I, I don't, I'm a very simple man. It's not comedy if you're not <laughs> laughing. Right. You know, I mean, if you're amused, that's fine, but right. that's, that's not the point. Right. The point is to provoke laughter. Whether you use four cameras or one, that's what you're trying for. Right. Yeah, I, short answer to your question is I, I'd love to do a, a show film style. Mm-hmm. That hasn't happened yet. Not yet, but maybe that maybe yet. that's nice. Who knows? Well, the final question is this. Between the original runs of your shows and then often overlappingly even the syndication, which I think seems like it maybe feeds the continued original runs, right? I mean, it's happened yeah. with so many of your yeah. shows. Your work has reached a lot of people, and I just wonder for you, as you go out amongst the masses and, you know, talk about your... Like, you, go out amongst yeah. the masses. Because <laughs> they're not here in Burbank. Well, the masses <laughs> aren't here in Burbank. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, what is the most meaningful feedback that you get from these many, many people who watch what you do every week? What means the most to you to hear from them? Well, you know, I came up with the dream of being a musician, and I was always in love with great songs. I thought great songs are magical things. The greater the song, the longer the lifespan. They seem to be timeless, you know. What Beatles song is dated? I mean, <laughs> truly, they're as great now as they were when they were written. And the idea that you can make a TV show that might have some longevity, is that's a dream come true for me. I always liked the idea that I'd rather make handkerchiefs than tissues. <laughs> handkerchiefs can be used right, again. Right. But in answer to your question about talking to people, about watching the shows and mm-hmm. their feedback, the shows become meaningful to people when they're watching them over a period of time. That's how I felt growing up. Shows were meaningful to me. When they got taken off the air, I disavowed television <laughs> after the Smothers Brothers and Star Trek were canceled. I think the same year. It might have been like 69 or something year. like that. It was a bad year. <laughs> You're kidding me? You're taking off Star Trek and the Smothers Brothers in the same year? Right. You know, that was one was immensely funny and sophisticated, right. and Star Trek was, you know, for a science fiction fan, it was a dream come true. So I went, all right, I'm done with television. <laughs> right? That's it. But then you fall in love with the show. I certainly do. And uh, it becomes part of the, your week. You look forward to it. I do. True. You know, oh, boy, it's <laughs> Thursday night. <laughs> Cheers is on. Seinfeld's on. All the great NBC comedies over the years. And so to be able to say that we may have accomplished that with some of these things is immensely gratifying. You know, and then you feel an obligation. You don't want to let them down. I don't want show 211 to suck. I want it to be just as good as show 9. That might be the first one somebody sees. Yeah, Yeah. it might be, because the way these things run in syndication, or you sit in a plane on JetBlue and you plug in your headphones and there's a Big Bang episode, I want it to be a great one, Mm -hmm. because that might be your only experience of the show. Again, I had never dreamed that I'd be in this position, looking back that, you know, have TV shows that actually matter to people. And, uh, you know, the real question is how to proceed in a way that maybe uh, I can get home earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy you get your break now after tonight. Yeah, enjoy. And thank you so much for this. Thanks. This is a lot of fun.